2: Hey everybody and welcome to a Thursday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk Podcast. A few segments coming to right Lance Reisland is going to come up uh, later to discuss what he saw on Monday night against the Bengals. But first, it's Mary Kay Cabot. It's Ashley Bastock. It's me, obviously. And we are reacting to what GM Andrew Barry had to say today. His bi-week press conference uh, was today on Wednesday. So let's get into it and let's just start here, Mary Kay. No one's surprised, but we did get actual confirmation from someone in the organization that the plan is to start Deshaun Watson in week 13 against the Houston Texans.
1: Yeah, you know, when there started to be a lot of speculation that perhaps, uh, you know, Jacoby was playing well enough that he might warrant some consideration for that game. I did write a couple of weeks ago and kind of put that to rest a little bit and, you know, said that, Deshaun Watson will be starting December 4th in Houston. But this, as you mentioned, was the very first time we heard it out of the mouth of someone in the organization saying unequivocally uh, that Deshaun is going to be the guy when he comes back. Not a surprise. You don't spend $230 million on a guy, give up three first-round picks, and then just give him a little time on the bench uh, You know when he comes back from his suspension. So, uh, He's on track to be reinstated, we know that, and now he's on track to start that game. Ashley, is there something
2: to be said about why, like, kind of why it is important, though, for them to come out and say it? Because I suppose there is a scenario where, like, uh, maybe he doesn't look ready in practice or something, or maybe he looks a little rusty or whatever, is there at least some merit to just saying, like, essentially it does I mean, if Andrew Barry's sitting up there saying it, he's basically saying it doesn't matter, he's playing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think for the reason that you said, right, I don't think that anyone is under the delusion at this point that Jacoby Brissett would somehow beat Deshaun Watson out for the starting job uh, when Deshaun Watson comes back. Jacoby Brissett has always known what the scenario is. It's not like they have gone 8-0 with Jacoby Brissett through this first half of the season, but... It it is what you said because we have to remember it's going to be, at that point, 23 months since Deshaun Watson has played a real NFL game. Um, Of course, we know the preseason game against Jacksonville did not look so good in an extremely, extremely small sample size, obviously. Um, But if there was any lingering questions, you know, among fans about, hey, like if if this guy looks rusty those first couple weeks back, might they give him an extra week? That's it is interesting to get the confirmation that that won't be the case. And I think it kind of tells you like what Andrew Barry and a larger theme thinks about this team and where it's headed this year. Uh, So Mary Kay with Deshaun and and sort of this
2: offense and transitioning him kind of Mm -hmm. into this offense. How does it look different, do you think? Does does it look that different from what we've seen? Because Andrew sort of downplayed that, but, I mean, when you pay a guy $230 million and give up three draft picks, you're kind of building this thing around him.
1: Yeah, I don't think it will look a lot different, and one of the reasons why is because Jacoby has taken way more downfield shots than I thought he would, uh, and I think they've probably called more than they thought they might, and... Of course, a lot of this has come ever since I wrote a column saying that he's taking too many of them and that he's not Deshaun Watson. So we can all thank me for inspiring Jacoby Brissett to complete some of those downfield passes and get this offense going. Um, But, yes, I do think that it will be very similar. I think that there will be you know, more RPOs and designed runs for Deshaun Watson. So I think that they will, you know, they will take advantage of his legs and his dual threat status more than they did with Jacoby. But as we know, Jacoby Brissett has really used his legs very wisely through these first eight games. And he has scored touchdowns and he's uh, converted a lot of fourth downs and he's done a lot of keepers and things like that. So, you know, the fact that he was able to do that, I actually think is one of the reasons why they acquired Jacoby and we didn't really, you know, understand the emphasis right. on that as much as as we have seen it play out on the field.
2: Yeah, Ashley, I think there's some there's something to be said. This is a bigger discussion about the offense. There's probably something to be said about like Deshaun's going to be your quarterback for a long time, so why not just run the offense that he, I mean, you have 10 other guys, not more than 10. You got 15, 20 other guys right. that need to be able to run that offense when Deshaun comes back. Maybe it makes for a more seamless transition, although you could also argue maybe it cost you a couple wins
3: here and there. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely did because how many times have we said this year it looks like the Browns are trying to run a Deshaun Watson offense with Jacoby Brissett there? You know, some of those especially with Jacoby, the turnovers that he's had late in games. you got to think if Deshaun Watson was in those scenarios, maybe the Browns wouldn't be down, period, that late in a game, or he would make some of those throws. So I think that's the biggest thing, and kind of like what Mary Kay said, just what Deshaun can do on the ground. Um, Obviously, Jacoby's maybe uh, his game on the ground might be an underrated part of his game from what we've seen, but that and the RPO and Deshaun Watson's processing, I think, is just – at the elite level in this league. So that's where you're going to really see the differences in in those sort of aspects of how this looks.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. When Mary Kay was talking about Jacoby running, that was one of my thoughts. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, when Deshaun comes back, it's not going to be just what he does with his legs. I mean, it's going to be more dynamic than Jacoby is when he runs, but it is going to be that processing and going through reads and like seeing things quickly and, and spreading the ball around a little more.
1: Yeah, and, you know, you might see, uh, what I expect to see is more touchdown passes. There have been so few touchdown passes, and I think that's one of the things that that you will see way, way more of. I think you'll see David Njoku catching touchdown passes. I think you'll see Donovan Peoples-Jones doing so, and more from Amari Cooper as well, although he leads the team now with, I think, five. Um, But, yeah, there's been... Uh, you know, just a little bit of a a lack of throwing touchdown passes, and they have relied more on running the ball in the red zone. So I think that's one area where where they will be able to make some hay, uh, and they'll feel really good about that. And, again, I do think that there will be more uh, design runs and and things like that in the RPOs, but I have to say this about Jacoby. I've been so impressed with his ability to use his legs like that, and he reminds me in some ways – of how hard Ben Roethlisberger is to take down. He's not fast. Uh, you know, he, they joke around about that. You know, he's more of a you know, a lumbering type of a quarterback in some ways, but he gets the darn job done and he can slip away from pressure, and you you can't easily bring him down, and that has helped a and, lot.
3: And he does have some size to him, exactly. right? Like obviously he's not as big as Big Ben was, but he's he's no, still he's a big. taller
1: guy, you know? Yeah, very big, yes
3: uh so the trade
2: deadline of course was Tuesday and so Andrew obviously got asked about that he did admit that the Browns came close to acquiring a player which I thought was interesting uh he also had high praise for Kareem Hunt who the team did not move on from at the trade deadline but you know Mary Kay still that thing that stands out to me is they did almost make an acquisition which tells me that he does really kind of believe in what they have right now
1: yeah, and um, you know, I think what they probably did, they probably looked for a player that uh could have come in and helped them for the next 2 or 3 years down the road, someone that they could have made uh a nice extension offer to. And that's the part where they probably weren't able to to pull off that whole thing and therefore uh, it, it just didn't work out, or maybe the, uh, maybe the trade terms didn't work out with the team or whatever the case may be. But I certainly don't think they were looking for a nine-game rental. They okay. were looking for somebody that could come in here and fill a hole down the road. And now, if it were me trying to make that trade, I would have been on the lookout for another really good receiver. You can't have too many. You know that about, uh, you know, you can see that in what the Bengals are going through right now. So um and I long thought that like what if something happens to Amari Cooper, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean if like if something happened to Amari Cooper, uh they would be in trouble here. So I think they need another guy like that, another Pro Bowl type of receiver on this roster. But um we don't know yet what that was or what they tried to do. It it could have been a defensive player, they could have been uh trying to fill uh, you know more of the holes at the at the linebacker position or defensive tackle, maybe even defensive back. You know, I we don't know what it was, but um, but he was still trying to improve this team. In part, I think, uh, for the future, but also in part because they still feel like they have plenty to play for this year.
2: And there's probably complications too, because like you know you mentioned the extension part of it, Mary Kay, but then. You know, I would have loved for this team to have gotten in on Bradley Chubb, right? But that involved a first-round pick, Mm -hmm. and this team doesn't have a first-round pick. This team doesn't have a ton of really high draft capital to throw around, and I'm sure the draft capital they do have, they want to deal with very carefully. They want to have those seconds. They want to have those thirds. I mean, I know they gave away more than just the first in the Deshaun trade, but I think they're going to be very Careful with their draft capital moving forward, unless they can get a guy, Ashley, that they look at and say, This guy's young, he's gonna be here for four or five years, and that's okay if we don't have draft pick.
3: Yeah, I think it would have to be a guy basically like what you're saying, that when we think of Andrew Berry regime, draft picks, like what do those guys look like? They're young, the team will have you know control over them for years to come. Um, maybe financially it's gonna be beneficial to the team. All of these things, I think, would have to play in because, again, like you just have less capital to work with now than most teams. So I think you have to be really calculated and really strategic. And I think this front office has kind of always done that to some extent, but it's even more so now, I think, going to become a priority.
2: And then just to touch on Kareem here, Mary Kay, hearing Andrew praise him like that, I just feel like Kareem can't help himself. Like, he kind of tried to hold out in training camp and then was back doing team drills right away. I just feel like he can't help himself. Even if he's unhappy or wants to be traded or whatever it is, he's just going to go out and play hard no matter what.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, first of all, this is his hometown. He loves his hometown team. He loves the game of football, and, you know, if you go back... And you know, and read the story that I wrote about Kareem Hunt, and when he talks about what his life was like in his year out of football. Uh, he has such an appreciation for the game because it was taken away from him and he had no idea if he was ever going to get back on that football field again. So he has a different perspective for the game than many other people do and he only knows one way and that's to play like, you know, a kamikaze or the Tasmanian Mm -hmm. devil that people say that he is when he's out there. So Um, You know, so he's going to give it his all in the rest of the season, and who knows what can happen after that. If they love his attitude and they love what they're seeing on the field, and we know Nick Chubb loves having him around and other guys do too, you know, stranger things have happened. Let's keep it going. Um, Then, you know, then for a guy to come back after – all seems lost. Mm-hmm.
2: We're going to have to have like a Stranger Things drinking game for our yeah. listeners. Like whenever there's a Stranger in Things in the summer,
3: reference. we should do a Stranger Things rewatch and recap pod. We should we do. Let's there do you it. Go. I'm, I'm have, down we, for that. Can have my daughter on the pod. There we go. So come
2: on and do our Stranger Things recap.
3: Um, anything else really stand out to you today from from Andrew? I mean, I I just thought it was interesting when he gets these questions about the team's identity. That like the one thing that really jumped out to me is. Talking about leaning into strengths, even if those strengths maybe look different or like the personnel (laughs) regarding those strengths looks different than... What they originally anticipated. And I think especially on defense we see that a lot, right? Like with the emergence of Martin Emerson. Like I don't think anybody expected him to play as much as he had early, and maybe he's gonna get more snaps. And hey, like look at how well Taki Taki has been playing this year compared to J O K and Jadavian Clowney hasn't really done much, but look at how much you've been able to utilize Alex Wright and Isaiah Thomas in limited snaps without him or when Clowney's been out when with Chase Winovich on IR right now, like I think a lot of the personnel does look different. Um, So it was kind of interesting to hear him, I think, divulge that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that that is an interesting concept, and you're so very right about that. Uh, The players that we heard all along that were going to pop off the, the field and on the screen this year, The, uh, you know, the Jordan Mm Elliott's and the the Grant Delpit's and some of those guys, we haven't necessarily seen that yet, but other guys have really stepped up. You mentioned the two, really, uh, that have done that, or actually the three that have done that in Thomas, in uh, Martin Emerson, and Taki Taki. I mean, I don't know what they would be doing at linebacker right now if Taki Taki hadn't emerged the way that he had with the loss. Up for the season of Anthony Walker and Jacob Phillips. I mean, he has been a really, really pleasant, bright spot for that defense this season. And, I mean, they they found themselves a player in, in Taki.
3: I mean, we didn't really get a chance to talk about him in the post-game pod, but that Bengals game, I mean, he was just all over the field in that game. I think it's athleticism that we haven't seen from him before here, and it just speaks to his development and hard work, I think. So there was another sort of
1: takeaway from the Andrew Barry presser today, and that was, uh, not that it surprised any of us, but I think fans have wondered a lot about Kevin Stefanski. And, you know, I, we know Andrew Barry and Paul D. Podesta well enough to know that they love Kevin Stefanski. He's their guy, he's their CEO coach, and nothing has changed about Kevin Stefanski in their minds at all, whatsoever, even though the Browns are 3-5 and five right now. So I think, you know, just to hear Andrew Barry sort of praise him again, give him that vote of confidence, it's something that I think, you know, maybe uh, maybe fans needed to hear, maybe talk radio needed to hear it, yeah. <laughs> uh, but certainly not a surprise to us.
2: No. Yeah, and I, I think one other thing, to, like just going back to that whole nine games left, like you, you did get the sense of, you know, I think a couple times he kind of said, There's nine games left, nine opportunities. Let's see where we're at at the end of it. And that's sort of how the NFL is. Like They're just going to play these games, and on January 8th, they count up the wins, and if you're in the top seven, you get in. Like It really is that simple. And so I I think that's where this team's confidence maybe comes from is they're maybe pointing in the right direction after that Bengals win, and if they could just kind of get through this next month and stay in the race, they might still have a chance.
1: Yeah, and, and here's one reason why. We said all along that we thought that Jacoby Brissett and this team without Deshaun Watson would have to hand over probably at least five victories to Deshaun uh, to keep them in the playoff conversation. And that is still in front of them. Now, it might not be the victories that we thought they were going to be, but they can go out and grab Two more victories in the three games that he has left. The Bucs aren't really what we thought the Bucks were going to be. And the Dolphins, although I think it will be a tough victory, they can, they can beat the Dolphins. We don't expect them to beat the Bills. But even if they get one more victory to hand over four victories to Deshaun Watson, they're still alive and afloat in, in the playoff hunt. So, you know, I, I do think that they are being realistic about this right now. There are people that don't believe that, but I think that they still do have a chance.
2: And I do think he couched it a little bit though too. He wasn't like, Yeah, we're gonna go obviously that's not Andrew's style. But I do think there was a little bit of you know, we'll see where we're at, there's still a chance. But I think there's also an an acknowledgement of the reality that they're three and five and it's it's gonna be an uphill climb.
3: Yeah I think overall just that though in this press conference, like I came away feeling like there was this air of optimism, and I mean, I think it's it's undeniable that a big part of that has, they haven't had Deshaun Watson here, right? Like, they don't, he's not going to fix every problem this team has, and Andrew Berry was very careful, I think, to talk about that and acknowledge that, but he's going to fix a lot. He's going to make this team, I think, look totally different. I think people don't even understand how different it's going to look, and I, I don't even know if we do until we see it in a real-game scenario, quite honestly, but again, I mean, it just goes back to, this is why they made the trade, because they're hoping something like that happens.
2: Okay, uh, there we go. Our Andrew Barry uh, press conference recap. Uh, Lance Reisland is going to be coming up on the other side to tell us well his thoughts on the Bengals. I think we're going to have a little Sione talky-talky uh, talk in that segment as well. That's tough to say. Say
1: that three times. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that, that
2: should be like a podcast. talky
3: talk would be an amazing podcast. podcast. Oh, talky my gosh. You talks. should pitch that, Dan. I might. I might just do that.
2: We'll see. Uh, it's probably a good thing we don't have an open locker room today because maybe maybe I would be sitting there pitching that to him. Uh, Mary Kay and Ashley, I'll talk to you later. And now we welcome Lance Riceland onto the Orange Brown Talk podcast to look back at the Browns' win over the Bengals, a dominating performance by the Browns' Lance. And the first thing you sent to me was pretty simple. Football starts up front.
0: Yeah, there's no question. You watch the game, and I thought a lot of people played well. They ran the ball well. They threw the ball well. um, But both the offense and defensive lines uh, really controlled the game from the start. Uh, Chubb had 101, uh, averaged 4.4 again. Uh, I thought the pass protection was fantastic. Uh, Defensively, uh, since he only had 36 yards rushing on 10 uh, 10 attempts, uh, they 5 sets. But the sacks kind of are misleading. There was constant pressure and constant push in the pocket. Um, You know, that's why, you know, when we talked earlier last week, I just thought that that matchup itself was the the key to the game. And uh, obviously the Bengals have struggled with the Browns for a while now. And that matchup up front, especially defensively, is is one of the key reasons.
2: So, I mean, let's just start with Miles Garrett. Um, Yeah, I felt like his final stats, even though they were great stats – I thought that they didn't really tell the whole story of Miles Garrett. He had a one and a half sacks. He had a pass deflection. Um, PFF credit him with eight pressures in the game, which which is a fantastic number. But even with all of that, I felt like it just didn't tell the story of how dominant he was in this game.
0: Yeah, when you talk about the term game wrecker, we often use that a lot with you know certain guys in the NFL, and that was a game-wrecking performance because what it does, especially for Burrow, is – Constantly know he's coming. You constantly know he's probably going to get home. Those tackles really struggle. The Bengals, uh, I don't say they refuse to, but the Bengals are really hesitant in helping. in uh, Williams and, and uh, Collins, whoever else is in a tackle, um, they are really hesitant helping. And you just know, Burrow just knows he's coming. And when you have a guy like that, he is just always uh, pushing the pocket. You know you, the clock is fast. You have to get rid of the ball. Um, they try to get rid of the ball quick. Uh, the Browns tackled very well. Uh, But, yeah, that was a game-wrecking performance. And the stats do it no justice. He was absolutely um, dominant from start to finish.
2: So I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask about that and how the Bengals approach this. We've seen basically every team that has played the Browns throw two, three bodies at Miles Garrett sometimes. There's probably been plays where they've thrown four at him. (laughs) Who knows? The Bengals, when they played T.J. Watt, he had a big game, even though statistically it wasn't a huge game. You felt his presence. Micah Parsons had just a dominant performance against them, and now Miles Garrett doesn't. I mean, those are three defensive player of the year type players. Yeah, is it a refusal from Cincinnati to kind of make that adjustment and and leave their kind of leave their guys
0: on islands? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. They, um, you know, most teams are game planning for for those guys, and they're chipping, they're helping, they're sliding pr- protection to it. They're leaving tight ends there. Uh, you know, their answer was to get rid of the ball quickly, um, but that became a problem when they got down. And then obviously they didn't have an answer when they had to stretch the ball down the field. Um, yeah, there is a um, a schematic uh, problem in terms of their not helping those tackles and those tackles need help and especially with those elite guys all tackles need help with those elite guys and um they, they are refusing to do that and it was um it was very evident in terms of not being able to protect burrow whatsoever
2: who else on that defensive line popped for you
0: um well i liked i, I liked clowning i thought you know i think the, the pressure those guys when because of the matchup and because of what the Bengals like to do, I thought all those guys were able to play to their strength, which is getting upfield, penetrating, things we've been talking about for months. So those guys, Bryant and uh, Elliott, those guys are all – I thought Clowney was okay, uh, but but those guys get to jump in gaps and go because they know they're going to see the pass. And when those guys get to you know play uh, a predominantly a pass team, uh, they're pretty good. They have good technique. They get upfield. They take gaps. They're very good at pass rushing. They penetrate. They ran a couple good stunts. Uh, Jones comes on good on stunts. I thought Taki Taki was fantastic in terms of when he was coming on uh, when he was at the line of scrimmage. So yeah, I thought the the entire defense the entire defense played well, but the defense got to play to its strength because the Bengals don't run the ball.
2: All right, let's stay on the defensive side of the ball uh, before we get to some of this offensive stuff. And you mentioned the tackling. You mentioned Sione Taki Taki. I think those two things kind of go hand in hand. I you know I'm mean, going remember one specific play he had where he made a tackle in space that that short circuited one of those quick plays.
0: What are you seeing from Taki Taki right now? Well, I'll tell you what, the tackles in space are pretty obvious, but the things I liked were some of the the piles he created on the few runs that the Bengals had. They were running that duo scheme where they're going to double, and he did a really good job of moving forward and taking on that double to his cap. Uh, There was one in particular where um, Bryant did a pretty good job of fighting the double and he had a cap and he didn't make a great play and it wasn't uh, called by the announcers but as a football coach I really like the idea that he got downhill he attacked the guard and he just created a pile and it was a short two-yard game and you saw a lot of that from him in terms of getting upfield when he saw that double and that's one thing they've been missing so he tackled well in space uh, obviously with the Bengals throwing the ball but I really like his forward movement in in the run game uh, when the Bengals ran the ball.
2: So one of the things you said when when you texted me about him was he plays heavy explain what that means
0: well you know when he gets to he gets to the line of scrimmage and he is getting his hands on those linemen he's getting those hands on people trying to block him and he's maintaining his gap he's holding his A A or B gap if he's inside Uh, so he plays really heavy he's not getting moved either vertically or horizontally and he's just kind of anchoring in there kind of some of the stuff you want some of the defensive linemen to do the linebackers have to do the same thing especially when they're taking those gaps in the run game so he gets there you know he's 6'1 he's 230 uh, he plays with great leverage so he's not getting moved you know backwards or sideways and you can tell because there wasn't a lot of run lanes
2: this is a guy that throughout his career has mostly been an outside outside linebacker they've they've always had kind of a mike linebacker in place but you see a guy that you think could maybe be a mike linebacker
0: I do. And and the reason why is because especially with those doubles you see in, in the NFL is a predominantly I think there's some gap scheme teams. The Browns are one of them. But there's a lot of zone and there's a lot of duo and there's a lot of double teams. And you cannot wait on the double teams. And he's very instinctual. Uh, he sees those double teams and he goes. And uh, I really like that. I think it's fantastic. And, and there was a big difference between um, what we've seen with the Browns and, and what we saw uh, on Monday night in terms of moving forward. with Those linebackers Jones did a nice job as well.
2: So I want to ask you too, real quickly about the secondary, because obviously going against this Bengals team, they're going to throw the ball a lot. And even without Jamar Chase, T. Higgins is still a good player. Um, Tyler Boyd's still a good player, and the secondary was up for the task. M. J. Emerson was really good. Uh, you know, I didn't. I I don't mean this in a bad way. I didn't really notice Greg Newsome that much. That that's sometimes a good thing for a corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but he seems like he was solid. It just seems like the secondary had a bounce back game in this one.
0: Well, you know, I did some numbers that I thought were interesting. T. Higgins had a big 41-yard catch. was a great play. Uh, Hayden Hurts had a seam route when the uh, Bengals were, try- were in a hurry. And then Chris Evans had a 26-yard shoulder fade um, that he ran on a linebacker. So besides that, Burrow was 22-32 for 144 yards. So going back to what we were talking about last week in the scouting report, they kept everything in front. They communicated very well. Um, they made – so it became a problem for the Bengals because they were deep. The uh, Bengals like to throw deep, but the Bengals can't protect. Um, so they be, they started throwing these check downs to the backs a bunch. Um, and if you take away those, you know, those three big plays, you know, holding Joe Burrow in that offense with or without chase to 144 yards is, is really impressive. And I thought their communication has slowly, but surely gotten much, much, much better uh, throughout the season.
2: All right, uh, here we go. Players over plays. That was, that was one of the things you wrote. Go ahead.
0: Well, you got, Simply, simply, the Browns' two best players on offense are, are Nick Chubb and, and Amari Cooper, and you have 28 touches for 232 yards. For me, it's uh, it's not more; it cannot be more um, more important for the Browns to get those two guys the football. Um, and if you look at their offense in terms of play action and running the ball, that's a big night. And so, your two best players touched 28 times. I think that's that's a uh, recipe for success for sure.
2: The offensive line also, you know, again, just really good. And they're doing it with, you know, why Teller's been out for a couple of games, so it's been Yelda Froholt. Uh, you know, we saw them go with that jumbo package, and James Hudson had a highlight play when when he just absolutely flattened one, one of the Bengals linebackers. This offensive line in that run game, have you noticed them even missing a beat with, without Teller?
0: You know, we talked about this during camp as well. When we, you know, we were watching watching the offensive line and what they were doing. They're good no matter who's in there. Now, when you have Teller and Petonio and you have those elite guys, they're really, really good. But what, what Callahan does with their their culture and what they do in practice, there is no there is no drop off from guys going there. They know what they're doing. They know who they're supposed to block. They're technically sound um they get after it there's a there's a definite nastiness with those guys up front um so yeah they are good because that's the way they practice and I got I was like I, I tell everybody my favorite part um was that first 20 minutes of practice every day those guys are machines down there and it's not surprising uh that when new guys go in there they're just as good because they just rep it and rep it and rep it and they get really good at what they do the the James Hudson block I
2: only half jokingly tweeted during the game. People are gonna have to keep me up to date because I was as I was scrolling Twitter, I just kept seeing different angles of him just smashing uh, Akeem Davis Gaither on, on that on that play. As a coach, when when that comes up on film, are you just playing it over and over again for your guys? <laughs> What's the reaction on a play like that?
0: Well, absolutely. You know, and that was put in this week. You know, that was they had. Um they had uh, the big you know they had three uh, extra linemen in, so they had you know eight linemen on the field um <laughs> seven or eight linemen on the field during that like kind of a series so yeah you're rewinding it um it shows his athletic ability it shows that they 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 were being pre- kind of creative in the red zone i thought they did some really good things in the red zone with the uh with the direct snap to Chubb and, and the different personnel groups so yeah, that's something you play over. And it gives you kind of uh as a coach and as a player, it, it validates what you're doing in terms of trying to, you know, that was a simple gap play. Everybody blocks down, um, he kicks out, fullback leads up through. That's a that's football one on one. That wasn't a very complex play. That was we're running left, you know we're running left, and, and you gotta try to stop it. So yeah, you you run that one a bunch.
2: And you know, there, there's an element of this too, where it's like James Hudson is, you know, he started a couple games for Jack Conklin, but then he's sort of been He's just been on the sideline. He's probably gotten he's gotten some special teams work, but he's not getting out there and playing a lot as a, as a backup offensive lineman. It, it feels like that's sort of a, a good opportunity, you know, to sort of reward a guy like, hey, you're, you know, you're putting in this time. Bill Callahan's working you and we're going to give you it, it's one play. It's one chance. But we're going to give you we're going to yell that we're going to give all these guys, you know, Drew Forbes, we're going to give you a snap or two where you're going to have an opportunity to go hit somebody that's not a yeah. special team snap.
0: Yeah, you know, and it sets the tone. It sets the tone that, you know, a lot of times a lot of teams will get kind of cute down there in the red zone. For the Browns, inside the five-yard line, you give the ball to Nick Chubb four times to see if you can tackle him. And you kind of – I would assume that they kind of teach that in practice, and that's kind of what they think in practice. So, uh, all those guys are very pumped up. All those guys are very excited. They all get in the game. Uh, Everybody knows on that play, everybody knew he was going to get it, and and they opened a huge hole. Um, So, yeah, it's motivating. And, and like i said for those guys uh again those guys are all one unit so all those linemen whether they're in or not they're one unit so they're excited for each other so uh, i was not uh, not surprised um that he was in i'm not surprised because i think he moves his feet very well and what he did uh, it was a definitely highlight block but yeah it gets them going um and it kind of it, it stays true to the browns identity they're coming at you and you got to try to tackle them
2: yeah, Ke- Kevin did joke on Tuesday that there were gonna probably gonna be fines handed out in that room because those guys were getting mentioned by name in uh, in <laughs> <Exactly>. press conferences.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Uh, all right, Lance. I think that's everything. Uh, I appreciate the time.
0: Thanks for having me, as always, Dan. And welcome back to
2: the Orange Brown Talk podcast. We're gonna wrap up our week of podcasting with the return of my nfl playoff committee of one we didn't have one last week because we were doing the Bengals and browns all ohio teams please go back and listen to those if you missed them i thought they were a lot of fun but we're back with our nfl playoff committee of one just to refresh your memory this is the college football playoff committee style rankings of the nfl i do seven teams in each conference plus the first team out the only rules are i have to have four division winners three wild cards but i can rank them in any order i want so the division winners do not have to be one through four other than that let's get to it we're gonna start with the afc i've still got buffalo number one overall i think they're my number one overall team in general they have wins over every other division leader in the afc and they're the best team in football Kansas City is number two. They're strangely flying under the radar. Well, that loss to Indianapolis becomes one of the biggest outliers of the season. So our one, two remains the same. Three and four were tough, and I decided to go with Miami. They're the first wild card. They were number seven last time we did this two weeks ago. They've lost one game that Tua started, and that was the game against Cincinnati that he left at halftime. They also have a better win than Baltimore. They beat Buffalo, and so that win on their resume gives them number three over Baltimore, who's number four. They were actually my first team out last time. Now they're up to four. Maybe they found themselves a little bit in the second half against Tampa. They have an easy schedule coming up, and this is their chance to grab a hold of the AFC North. Number five is Tennessee. At some point, winning just has to matter. So even if it's against all bad teams, and it comes with that negative point differential, Tennessee gets to be number five. My number six team, the LA Chargers, they had a bye an unimpressive resume of victories they benefit from having that bye week and no one else grabbing hold of the bottom of the playoff picture i'm going to keep cincinnati in dropping all the way from number three to number seven an absolutely brutal performance monday night and they're they're losing some guys jamar chase is out they just lost a for the season but their strength of victory and strength of schedule is better than both the patriots and the jets The Patriots, my first team out, sixth-ranked defense by DVOA, and they edge out the Jets thanks to that head-to-head win. Over in the NFC, Philadelphia, undefeated, still number one. Everything looks real for this team, and they don't have many roadblocks ahead. They should stay number one the rest of the way. Dallas is number two, my first wild card. number three in overall DVA. And one of their two losses is to Philadelphia in these rankings. So their strength of victory and strength of schedule are both better than Minnesota's, who comes in at number three. They were number four last time, or one and two stayed the same, so Minnesota moves up a spot. Are they this good? I don't know, but again, at some point, just winning has to matter, and they are six and one. Seattle goes from unranked to number four, the second-best offense by DVOA. They've won four out of five, and they got a head-to-head win over the Giants, who might have been considered in this spot. Instead, the Giants are number five. Their losses are to Dallas and Seattle, who this committee views very highly at the moment. So New York benefits from that. San Francisco is number six. They move up from the seven spot. The 49ers are the Falcons in this spot. At least San Francisco has a positive point differential. DVOA likes them a little bit more too. So that leaves Atlanta at number seven. Winners of four of their last six, but it's still hard to tell how sustainable this all is. My first team out in the NFC, the LA Rams. Their four losses, Buffalo, Dallas, and twice to San Francisco. So I don't think they're good, but are they bad? I don't know. We'll see how things play out with the Rams. Okay, there we go. My NFL playoff committee of one rankings here on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Okay, it's the bye week, so no Friday pod this week. We're going to go ahead and take that day off. And of course, no post-game pod this week as well because, well, there's no game. So the next pod you're going to get will be a Hey Mary Kay podcast that we will record on Monday and that will hit your feeds either late Monday or first thing Tuesday morning. So please make sure you're subscribed to the orange Brown talk podcast. If you're missing us, like I said, go back and listen to those all Ohio teams that we put together last week or scroll through that feed and and find some of the really good long pots that we've done uh, in in the last year. There's some good stuff in there, but definitely check out those all Ohio teams. Uh, Apple podcasts and Spotify is where you can find those. And also make sure you're a football insider subscriber, cleveland.com slash Browns, the blue banner at the top of the page to get that newsletter every single day, get access to exclusive stories on cleveland.com slash Browns and become one of our text subscribers. Okay. You heard Mary Kay and Ashley earlier. You heard Lance there in the middle. I'm Dan. I'll talk to you guys next
0: week.